Our Father, we thank you for the privilege to be together. We thank you for the joy of sweet fellowship. There are many Wednesday nights that we come and we're exhausted. We could think of so many other things that we could be doing. There are those occasional Wednesday nights when we really feel like being here. There are those occasional Wednesday nights, Father, where it is an expression of discipline to be here. We go because we are not living for ourselves. We go because you've called us to minister in the body and there are needs here. And so we're coming to meet those needs. But Father, whatever the reason that motivates us, so often as a result of being together, we find ourselves renewed and refreshed so thankful that we've come. Thankful to be able to hear what's going on in people's lives. Thankful to be able to declare the deep, deep love of Jesus. Thankful to be able to hear the kinds of things you're doing in people like Catherine. In, in her life. Thankful, O oh Lord and God, that we can fellowship together. Thank, thankful that we have this place. Thankful that we have each other and thankful for the privilege to be reminded we are yours. And even as we discovered this past Sunday that Jesus is right in the midst of his churches. We ask, O oh Lord and God, that you would be with Lee as he's still in Europe and soon to be on his way home, that you would give him safe travel, cause this to be a beneficial trip for him. Take care of Judy while she's at home by herself working. Father, we pray for our sister Catherine, and I'm sure we will pray for her again between now and January. But we ask, O oh Lord, that all the resources that she needs for this trip would be provided. We're thankful for the unique gifts and skills and talents you have given to her. <clears throat> we pray, Father, that in the years to come, those gifts and skills and talents could be developed and enhanced. And that she would use these as a means of being able to declare the gospel to people who you place in her path. And so we ask, O oh Lord and God, that in these last few weeks before her leaving, that you would um, strengthen her and prepare her for the challenges that she will face. Giving her everything she needs, knowing there is a congregation here who loves her, and who is holding up her arms as she carries out this labor. And now, Father, we pray that you would be with us and cause us to understand your word. We want to think your thoughts after you. We want to know more than anything else that salvation is of the Lord. That salvation is not of the Lord and a little bit of us. Salvation is of the Lord only and exclusively. So guide us tonight. Be pleased with what we do. Overcome all of our obvious weaknesses and failings. The tripping over our tongue and all the things that characterize this to be a human exercise. Somehow, Father, break through and talk to us that our minds and our hearts are made right by the truth and authority of your word. We love you. Come talk to us now, dear Father. Amen. Amen. Why do some people respond positively to the gospel while others persistently refuse it? Why do some people respond positively to the gospel while others persistently refuse it? Some people, as you well know, hear the message of the gospel. They hear the good news and they embrace it with joy and with enthusiasm and with zeal. Others hear the very same message and to greater or lesser degrees want nothing to do with it. Oftentimes children in the same family. How do we account for these divergent responses? 
Are they ultimately determined by one's intelligence, by one's moral fitness, by one's religious upbringing? You say, well, Lord, I was here for the second of these messages, God's sovereign choosing. So I understand that the reason why any person responds positively to the gospel is because God, by virtue of certain conditions unique to his own holy heart, chose such a person to be saved from before the foundation of the world. And, you say, I was here last week when we came to see that for such people, Jesus Christ made an intentional atonement. That redemption, reconciliation, and propitiation were actually, effectually accomplished. And of course, my dear brothers and sisters, you are right. You are absolutely right. In so far as that goes. You say, what do you mean? Each of these saving accomplishments on the part of the Father and the Son, respectively, are historical achievements. That is to say, they have occurred long before any of us were even born. They are antecedent to us, and yet I think we would all acknowledge none of us are born into a saved condition, are we? So tonight I'm pressing into the more immediate question, the question that brings the experience of salvation into the present moment. What is it that actualizes salvation in a person's life at a moment in time? What is it that actualizes the experience of salvation in a person's life at a moment in time? What inaugurates the actual experience of it? And of course, dear friends, as we engage this question, you mustn't lose sight of what we discovered in our first evening together, the Bible's steady and consistent teaching regarding the human dilemma. That no one, if left to him or herself, possesses the capacity to respond to God in any kind of positive fashion. We saw this over and over and over again. Paul taught us in Romans 3, no one seeks God. He taught us in Romans 8, no one can obey God. He taught us in 1 Corinthians 2, no one can understand God. Jesus taught us in uh, John 6, no one can come to God. And to close off any possibility of exception, Paul adds this emphasis, if you recall, not even one. So maybe I need to rephrase my question. Rather than asking why do some people respond positively to the gospel while others persistently refuse it, I should ask why do any people respond to the gospel while others persistently refuse it? How can any person dead in sin suddenly see the gospel, hear the gospel, understand the gospel and welcome the gospel so enthusiastically that he willingly turns his back on sin and rests his eternal well-being upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ exclusively. Why does anybody ever do that? And the answer is overcoming grace. Overcoming grace. Now, of course, if you do believe that the natural state of a human being is that of moral and spiritual neutrality, so that a person is free to choose for or against God what is known classically as Pelagianism, then overcoming grace is altogether unnecessary. If you believe that the natural state of a human being is that of moral and spiritual sickness, but that a person still possesses the inherent ability to choose for or against God, semi-Pelagianism, the predominant view in American evangelicalism, then overcoming grace is altogether unnecessary. If you believe that the natural state of a human being is fallen, but that God has granted to all people enough strength to equip them with the ability to choose either for or against God, Arminianism, then overcoming grace is still altogether unnecessary. If, however, the Bible teaches a person to be altogether dead in sin and therefore unable to respond favorably to the gospel summons, then overcoming grace is absolutely indispensable if anybody is ever 
to be saved. Not a passive grace. Not an indifferent grace, merely supplying people with the capacity for belief, whether or not they ever choose Jesus Christ. This is an aggressive grace that actually brings saving belief into existence. A performative grace that produces the faith demanded in the gospel call. It's greater than than perhaps you have ever before realized. And if you understand this, then you will get your head around what we mean when we say that we are saved by grace alone. Let's take a look at this very thing in Romans chapter 8. In fact, let's jump right in at verse 28, shall we? You're acquainted with it. Verse 28 of Romans chapter 8. And we... No, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, friends, this is a verse that you love and that you cherish and that you cling to, don't you? You should. That's what it's here for. But let me ask you now, about whom... About whom is Paul speaking here in verse 28? Look at it. You say, well, Lord, Paul is talking about believers. He is talking about people who are Christians. Really? How do you know that? You say, well, look at how he defines these people. He refers to them. He defines them in two ways, to be exact. Firstly, Paul defines these people in terms that reflect their responsiveness to God. Look at it. Look at it. And we know that for those who love God. These are clearly people who are Christians. These are people who love God. But then now Paul defines the same group of people in a second way from a different vantage point, from the perspective of God's initiative toward them. Most literally this reads, to those who are the called ones. To those who are the called ones. Now friends, do you realize how often this language appears over and over and over again in the New Testament scriptures as a title for Christians? Repeatedly, they are referred to as the called. The called ones. The summoned. Those who have been summoned. Summoned by whom? It is a divine passive. Summoned by God. In fact, to ensure that we do not mistake God's initiative in this calling, Paul adds a qualifying prepositional phrase. Look at it. Those who are the called ones according to his purpose. We know that in all things, God is at work for good in the lives of a particular group of people. Who are they? From the perspective of human responsiveness, they are those who love him. From the perspective of divine initiative, they are the ones who have been called in keeping with God's sovereign purpose. So let me ask you, can this group of people, referred to as those called according to God's purpose, be a reference to all people everywhere? Let me ask it from another perspective. Can it be said that all people everywhere love him? The answer to the second question provides you with the answer to the first question. Paul is not talking about all people everywhere. Hence, whatever this calling is, it is necessarily distinct to a certain group of people. You say, now wait just a minute. We're commanded by Jesus to take the gospel call to every person to go to the very ends of the earth, calling people to faith in Jesus Christ. Yes. But this seems to be speaking about a distinct calling to a specific group of people defined as those who love God. Yes! You say, so what gives? The answer is, the Bible speaks of two different kinds of callings. And it's our lack of discernment at this point that gets us into trouble. 
There is what we might refer to, beloved, as the general call of the gospel. The universal call of the gospel. It is God's summons through people like us to all sinners everywhere. It is the indiscriminate universal offer of salvation. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other, Isaiah 45. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, John 7. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Matthew 11. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, Acts 17. Now, this is what you say to your neighbor. This is what you say to your coworker. Mom and dad, this is what you continually say to your children. This is what a missionary says to a tribe of natives. This is what Catherine will look to say to the people for whom she cares. This is the most thrilling thing a preacher can say. It's what I say to you nearly every Sunday. Never are we told to restrict our evangelistic efforts to those to whom the Bible terms the elect. We don't know who the elect are. God has not seen fit to inform us as to whom the elect are. Rather, as his ambassadors, we say to all people without discrimination, just as I say to you tonight, turn away from your sin, stake your eternal destiny upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, come to him tonight, and he will save you. Now, come and trust him. That is the general call of the gospel which we freely and happily declare without hesitation. But it's not what Paul has in mind right here when he speaks of the called, the called ones. There is another kind of gospel call, a call that not only contains the command to repent and believe, watch now, but a call that actually brings to life the very repentance and faith commanded. It's what we may refer to as the effectual call of the gospel. We use the word effectual because the call itself effects what it demands, namely faith in Jesus Christ. It is, my dear friends, a particular expression of the grace of God through the ministry of the gospel that cannot be outlasted by a person in sin. It lovingly conquers the resistance of a sinful person and brings him, brings her happily and willingly and freely to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, since the early part of the 20th century, people have labeled this expression of biblical teaching irresistible grace. But frankly, I'm not very crazy about the label because it can appear to suggest that people come to God in a mechanical and impersonal way, much like a robot, huh? like a piece of metal to a magnet, totally bypassing human responsibility. That's why I like the idea of overcoming grace. That despite my stubbornness, despite my rebellion, God didn't give up on me like a persistent lover. He kept on appealing. Appealing and appealing and appealing until his persistence overcame me. In other words, this grace is not a power that violates the human will. It is an exercise uninvited, an exercise of the power of God that liberates the human will with the result that inevitably Jesus Christ becomes the welcomed object of a person's faith. He doesn't believe for me. He doesn't believe in me. He doesn't believe through me. I believe. But the reason I believe is owing exclusively to him. It is his gift to me. Blaise Pascal says, Men will never believe with a saving and real faith unless God inclines the heart. And they do believe. As soon as he inclines it. Now the scriptures refer to this by many different labels. Many different phrases. It has been called regeneration. Titus 3. The circumcision of the heart. Romans 2. The new birth. 1 Peter 1. Being born again. John 3. 
being made alive, Ephesians chapter 2, being given a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36, being called out of darkness into light, 1 Peter 2, being made a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5. What is this overcoming grace, this effectual call? It is a summons from the king of the universe that carries with it such power, it brings about the response it demands in the hearts of the people to whom it is made. It's what Paul is referring to when here he speaks of those who are the called ones. A thing, a thing, dear friends, you need to keep in mind as you go on to read verses 29 and 30 where Paul establishes the basis for our confidence in the good working of God on our behalf. In other words, how can the called ones be certain that God will always affect their good? Because for these people, Paul now says, God has already performed the greatest good. Look at his logic. It's very, very plain. Again, verse 28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are the called ones according to his purpose. For, this is why we know that's going to happen. God's always going to work for our good. For, those whom he foreknew, or as we saw two weeks ago, loved before time, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's you and that's me. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, my friends, I know that this may be terribly familiar territory to you. But please notice three things in verse 30. First, take note of the various steps in the salvation process. Predestination, calling, justification, glorification... Now, it is obvious to anyone with eyes to see that Paul's burden here is not to be comprehensive because, as you'll notice, for example, certain aspects of salvation are eliminated. They're they're not mentioned, I should say. No mention of redemption. No mention of sanctification. Nor does Paul pause to define each one of these steps. What is apparent is that he lists them in chronological order. Those whom he predestined, He also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Second, please note that in relationship to each of these steps, the same subject is mentioned. That is, the same person performs the action. In this case, over and over, he. He, that is, God, notice. And those whom he predestined, He also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Third, note carefully that in relationship to each of these three actions, or these several actions, the same objects are mentioned. In other words, those who have been predestined are the very same ones who have been called. Those who have been called are the very same ones who have been justified, and those who have been justified are the very same ones who have been glorified. Now focus for a moment on one clause in particular, the one that says, those whom God called, he also justified. Those whom he called, he also justified. Now my dear friends, is this the general call of the gospel that goes out to all people everywhere without discrimination? It cannot be. We know this by looking both forward and backward in the immediate context. What do we see when we look backward? Look at it. Look at it. This call is said to be given to those who have been predestined. Predestined to what? Predestined to hear the gospel? Look at the text. Look at the text. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to, to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. Now, verse 30 says that those who have been so predestined to be conformed to the image of God's son have also been called. So let me ask you, have all people been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? No. This calling then cannot be a reference to the general call of the gospel that goes out to all people. Moreover, this is made evident by what follows. 
Paul says that all those who are called are also said to be justified. Not just some of them, all of them are said to be justified. None who are called remain unjustified. This then is not the general call of the gospel to all people everywhere. But this leads us then to an inevitable conclusion. We know that justification is by faith. So if all those who are called are most certainly justified, then this call itself must affect the exercise of faith since no one can be justified apart from faith and all those who are called are justified. Have I lost you? I'm sorry. Between God's act of predestination and God's act of justification, there is this divine act of calling. Since justification is only by faith, then this act of calling mentioned here is the act of God himself, whereby he brings into existence the very faith he himself demands. This is not the general call to all in order to make all people accountable This is the effectual call to the elect in order to make them believe. And why is this overcoming grace, this effectual calling, indispensable to your experience of salvation, beloved? Because apart from it, you would never ever come to Jesus Christ. Because apart from this, I would never ever come to Jesus Christ. Right now, I would remain defiantly opposed to him. We saw this in John chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now watch, friends. This is very important. There is a tight connection between grace and faith. A very, very tight, organic connection between grace and faith. But we always must be careful to preserve the divine priority, the divine order, the divine chronology. Why? Most importantly, it's because it's what the Bible teaches but also because it underscores the reality that salvation is all of God. In other words, we do not experience God's grace because we exercise faith. We exercise faith as a consequence of experiencing God's grace. Grace must precede faith. Grace must come before faith. Grace is the root out of which faith emerges as the fruit. Now, friends, existentially, as you experience salvation, you're not conscious of the root. You're only conscious of the fruit. You hear the gospel. You feel the conviction of sin. You become persuaded of the saving sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And with every ounce of your conscious will, you turn away from your sin and cling to this great Savior. That's why you will say to me, I believed in Jesus. I turned from my sin. I trusted in Jesus. Of course you did. No one is ever converted who doesn't do that. What you are unaware of at that very moment, however, is that your experience and expression of repentance and faith is the consequence of a holy invasion of the grace of God, a grace that came upon you without invitation. And yet it happened so gently that you were altogether unaware of it. All you were mindful of was its consequence. Herman Bavink has said it like this, God's effectual calling is so powerful that it cannot be conquered and yet so loving that it excludes all force. C.S. Lewis says, The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. So just listen. Just listen. Put your pens down. Just listen. Just take in the text. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. The Lord opened her heart 
to respond to Paul's message. She responded to Paul's message. No one is ever saved who does not respond to the gospel message. No one is ever saved who doesn't respond to the gospel message. Do you hear the gospel tonight? Then you come to faith in Jesus Christ. Respond to the gospel message. Why did Lydia respond to the gospel message? The same reason you and I do. The Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. You see, you catch the divine priority there? Grace was not the consequence of faith. Faith was the consequence of grace. She doesn't do something so that God can then do something. God does something so that she would do something. 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul says unbelievers have been blinded by the God of this world. Blinded, beloved, you see, to the very message we are given to proclaim to them. So what's the remedy? Fifteen verses of just as I am without one plea? Music that manipulates? Sermons filled with all kinds of tear-jerking stories? What's the remedy? For God, who said... Let light shine out of darkness. When did God say, let light shine out of darkness? Genesis 1. Creation. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts, he compares the miracle of the original creation to the miracle of recreation. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying like the very first day of creation, when God called light out of darkness, he now, in an act of new creation, overpowers our darkness with the light of his grace. And there before our very eyes is God's own blazing Shekinah, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see the divine priority? Did you hear it? Grace is not the consequence of seeing Seeing is the consequence of grace. What did the apostles say when they heard Paul's testimony regarding the conversion of the Gentiles? Listen, friends. They glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, listen, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Why does anybody repent? Because God grants it. You don't possess the inheritability to repent. God grants it. You hear the priority? Grace was not the consequence of repentance. Repentance was the consequence of grace. Speaking of the ministry of Apollos and Achaia, Luke writes, When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. By the means of grace, they had believed. You hear the priority? They didn't come to grace through believing. Believe in Jesus and you'll get grace. They came to believe through grace, because of grace, by the means of grace. Paul says to the Philippians, It has been granted to you, for the sake of Christ, to believe in Him. What? Yeah. Faith is God's gift to you. Faith is a gift. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ to believe in him. Grace is not the consequence of faith. Faith is the consequence of grace. In fact, to unpack this a bit more definitively, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's just begin by reading in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul begins by saying, here's your biography. You were dead. And 
As a result of that deadness, you were dominated by three powerful forces that in and of yourself you cannot overcome. The world, the flesh, the devil. Consequently, you now wear a target on your chest for God's eternal judgment. You are a child of wrath. The bullseye is on you. What's our hope? Given the fact that we're dead? Dominated by three tyrannizing enemies that we can do nothing to extricate ourselves from? Verse 4. But God. Those ought to be two of the happiest words in the Bible for you, friends. But God. Being rich in mercy. A statement there of his character. Because of the great love with which he loved us. There's the motivation. Even when... We were dead in our trespasses. Now, friends, there is a time statement. Look at it. Look at it. When we were dead. That is the statement of time. When we were dead. What happened when we were dead? Notice. God... Made us alive together with Christ. God did something to us. We couldn't do anything for ourselves. God did something to us. We do not perform the action. We do not make ourselves alive. God performs the action. The action is performed on us. The action is performed to us. Who made us alive? Who is the antecedent to this verb? God. God does this. This is where we get the term monergism, like the bookstore. Monergism books. It means one work. God does it. This act of making someone alive who is dead in sin, God does it. And notice now, notice now, friends, because this ought to tell you everything. When Paul appreciates the magnificence in that work of God alone, he explodes with a theme that he's going to develop in a couple of verses, but he just can't help himself. Look at it. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Notice how Paul defines grace. God making us alive. That's how Paul defines it. God makes you alive. By grace, you're saved. That's how Paul defines grace. That's how we need to define grace, you see? Grace, properly speaking, is not an offer to be accepted or rejected by you at will. It is actually an invasion of your inner being so that you are impelled to believe. In other words, friends, what the Bible steadily and consistently teaches can be summarized in three simple words. Regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. If a sinner is ever to be saved, God's work must precede the sinner's work. Turn with me to 1 John, would you? First John, I want to show you something very interesting. And I want to be very careful not to be unduly technical here. So um, I, I won't say all that could be said, but there's, there's a very, very important concept that John wants to teach over and over and over again. First John was written to show Christians that they have eternal life. This is a book written to teach assurance of salvation. And John does this through many, many different avenues. But one of the ways he helps Christians understand that they really are truly God's child is he talks about evidences in the life of someone who has been authentically born again. And so there's a phrase that repeats itself several times, about five or six times. I'm just going to point you to three or four of these. Notice in chapter 2, <clears throat> I just want to 
just take you through a brief little exercise. And I'll try and make it as simple as I can. Verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, that is Jesus, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. You see that little verb, practices righteousness? It's in the present tense. Notice the next verb, has been born of him, perfect tense. Now, whenever you see two verbs butted up against each other, one is perfect tense, one is present tense, the perfect tense is chronologically prior to the verb that is in the present tense. One of these verbs occurs before the other. The perfect tense occurs before the present tense verb. Here, the present tense verb practices righteousness. The perfect verb has been born of him. One comes before the other. What occurs first? You practice righteousness and then you're born again? Or you're born again and you practice righteousness? You're born again and you practice righteousness. That's what the grammar is saying here. This is not a theological construct. That's what the grammar means. Chapter 3, verse 9. Here's another example of this. In fact, there are two in verse 9. I'll just show you one. Notice, no one born of God, perfect tense, perfect tense, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, ongoing action, present tense. One of these verbs occurs before the other. The perfect tense verb occurs before the present tense verb. The present tense verb practices sinning, Perfect tense verb, born of God. So what occurs first? I stop practicing sinning and I'm born of God or I'm born of God and I stop practicing sinning? Yeah, the latter, right? How about another one? Chapter 4, verse 7. This is so important for us in our life in the body. Beloved, let us love one another. He's talking about Christians here. Let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God. Whoever loves, that's present tense verb, has been born of God. Perfect tense verb. One of these occurs before the other. The perfect tense occurs before the present tense verb. So what occurs first? I love and then I'm born of God or I'm born of God and I love? I'm born of God and the proof of that is I love. The proof of that is that I love. The proof of being born of God is that I obey. The proof of God is I don't practice sin. All evidences of the new birth. Someone who's been authentically born again. Okay? Now, finally, last one. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes, present tense, that Jesus is the Christ, has been Born of God. Perfect tense. Which comes first? Believing or being born of God? Believing is in the present tense. Born of God in the perfect tense. One is chronologically prior to the other. You do not believe first and then are born again. You are born again. And the evidence of it is you believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Grace before faith. Now, beloved, I urge you to appreciate the fact that this is not a theological construct. This is an exegetical conclusion. It is the repeated and inescapable testimony of the scriptures. Why do any people respond positively to the gospel while others persistently refuse it? The answer is, through the preaching of the gospel, God invades the human heart, liberates the human will, and draws a person to Jesus Christ. You come, you repent, you believe but you do so not because the preacher's stories were so slick or the music was just manipulative enough. You come because his call to you was filled with a power to effect the very thing demanded from you. His grace overpowered your sin. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. My dear friends, let me ask you tonight, for what are you praising God when you thank him for your salvation? 
For what are you praising God? And by the way, little side note, guys who preach don't do what I'm about to do. Little digression. Your singing has been wonderful as of late. But let me ask you, for what are you praising God when you thank him for your salvation? Are you thanking him for accomplishing half of it? I mean, after all, he did make the offer. Are you thanking him for accomplishing the larger part of it? You were, after all, sick in sin. Are you thanking him for accomplishing nearly all of it? After all, he did give all people strength that they might contribute their own small part. Or is your worship fueled by something altogether different, infinitely more? The realization that your salvation from top to bottom, stem to stern, has been his doing? His is not merely an expression of grace that grants to all people the possibility of belief so that they might be saved. His is an expression of grace that grants to some people the very act of belief so that they will be saved. It is a grace that is efficacious because it is a grace that overcomes. Last illustration is for fun. John chapter 1. Turn there. I just want you to see it on the page. John chapter 1. And we'll finish right here. I love these early days. John records the first seven days of the ministry of Jesus. And it's during this time that he is fashioning the apostolic band. Calling his first disciples. And uh, a couple of disciples of John the Baptist follow Jesus. One of whom is Andrew. He gets his brother Peter. But notice now in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. He found Philip. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Who found whom? He found Philip. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him. Of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We have found the Messiah. We have found the one that all of the Old Testament was writing about. We found him. You know what he says? Is he lying here? Is he being intentionally deceitful? He's talking the same way you talk. He's speaking existentially. I found Jesus. I trusted Jesus. I've embraced Jesus. I heard about Jesus. I'm following Jesus. I've given my life to Jesus. I've surrendered myself to Jesus. That's what you say. That's what I say. But something happened to me to make me find Jesus. He found me first. He found Philip. In turn, Philip says, we've found him. Sounds just like you. I sought the Lord. And afterward, I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. That's the reason any of us are following Jesus Christ tonight. Are you thankful that he found you? It seems to me, friends, that if you've never really truly understood this before, for the first time tonight, you are understanding what it means to be saved by grace alone. And now when we sing those words, you can enter into the fullness of what they mean. Let's pray together, shall we?
Father, we remember that great cry of the Reformation. We are saved by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. And therefore we declare. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone. The glory. This is not wooden, dry, sterile theology for us. This is transformational. This sets our hearts singing. And it fills us with confidence to go out declaring the gospel knowing... That a person's conversion is not up to my manipulative arguments. The genius of my apologetic. Music that can wear down resistance. It is owing to a potency that comes only from you. That can bring a person from death to life which enables them to see for the very first time their own fallen condition and the beauty and glory and sufficiency of the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we come embracing, turning from our sin, and often saying to other people, I found Jesus. I've embraced Jesus. And that is true. But it doesn't say all there is to say. I found Jesus. Because he first found me. Thanks be to God. Amen.